is a true story of two people whose lives are transformed by the knowledge of the fact that Jesus, who was dead, was alive again. And that knowledge still transforms people today, taking them from a place of unbelief to faith, from doubt to faith. And as Ross reads the passage for us in a little second, um, I want you to be listening, but I want you to be asking yourself a question. And if you're a believer, I want you to ask, how does this passage help me become a confident follower of Jesus? And if you're here today, you're not a Christian. It's great that you're with us. You're welcome, very welcome. I'd like you to ask, where should I go to help me understand the significance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus? It's an important question. And verse 13 of chapter 24 gives us our GPS. It says that this is the same day. So it's talking about that first Easter day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And Luke has already shared for us how earlier that same day, some women had been going to the tomb to anoint Jesus' dead body but didn't find him. All they found was a stone rolled away, an empty tomb, and an angel who took great pleasure in pointing out how ridiculous it was to look for someone who is alive in a cemetery. Ross is going to read to us from Luke 24. Uh, Begin at chapter 13, and that's on page 1061 of the Pew Bibles. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with him. 
when he sat at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They were, there they found the living and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has now appeared to Simon. <coughs> then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Well, I wonder if you've seen the film, or read the book, really, of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Anyone seen it? The film? Read the book? Who's read the book? Ooh, quite a lot. More of you need to read that book. It's a classic. Lewis is a genius storyteller. The way, you know, his character development in the book is phenomenal. Uh, that's my rant over. Um, the, uh, in preparing for today's sermon, I could not get a scene from the line, the witch, and the wardrobe out of my head. And it's a scene uh, towards the end. Of course, Susan and Lucy Pevensey, two of the four children transported to Narnia in this, uh, the classic line, witch, and the wardrobe. And Susan and Lucy are uh, two girls who love Aslan, the lion, the creator of and the one true king of Narnia. And he is both, even as, as uh, Lewis depicts him, both terrifying and beautiful at the same time. In his own words, he's safe. He's, he, no, wait, I got that wrong. Let me start again. He's not safe. <laughs> it's an important word. He's not safe, but he is good. On Aslan, all in Narnia pin their hopes, including Susan and Lucy. But they face a real threat from a, in the form of a wicked witch. But if Aslan is alive and well, they feared nothing. Here's the thing. And this is a scene that was in my head. Aslan is killed. Susan and Lucy see it. And their world falls apart. Lewis describes Susan and Lucy's confusion and sorrow at this king's death. But I think he does it in such an unusual way that it just kind of grabs you and makes you pay attention. Listen to what he says. Lewis actually interrupts the storyline of the book to speak to you personally. It's a fascinating thing. He says, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness where you feel as if nothing is ever going to happen again. And I thought, well, that could well describe these two travelers on the road to Emmaus that morning. They believed that Jesus was the creator and the one true king of the whole world. They had pinned their hopes on Jesus. When he was alive, they feared nothing. But when Jesus died, well, really, so did their hopes. 
their hopes were seemingly extinguished. That's where we begin in our text. Let me show you that from verses 13 to 24. Hopes extinguished. All you have to do really is look at their faces and you see their sorrow. You see that in verse 17. It it tells us what their faces were like. Their faces are downcast. Why? Well, verse 21 tells us, we had hoped, past tense, that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They knew that in the scriptures, God had promised to send someone, a redeemer, a rescuer, a king, who would rule on God's behalf and set up a new and a wonderful kingdom for God's people. And they believed that Jesus was that guy, the Messiah. But when the religious leaders of the day not only rejected him, but had him crucified, these guys, the the disciples were confused. These two travelers on the road were confused. Because that's not the way it was meant to end, in their opinion. The king was supposed to reign. But how can he be God's promised anointed king if he's in a tomb? If he's dead and buried, he's not going to rule anything from in there. Their hopes were dashed. That's why their faces are downcast. And I'm sure many, if not all of us, have experienced a deep and a heartbreaking disappointment that makes our face downcast. But don't miss this. The first thing I want to point out is that this is what life without a resurrection looks like. Anyone who looks at life and thinks this is all there is will at some point find their lives, their faces downcast and their lives in despair as they did. The day-to-day routine distracts too many people from thinking about their existence. But when a relationship breaks down, when a child gets sick, when a loved one dies, what, what, what comfort is there in a life without Jesus? In a life without resurrection? I like visiting the National Museum of Scotland with my family up on Chamber Street. It's a great place to take the kids. And there's one area where they show a video about how the universe came into existence and as a consequence how we came into existence. Needless to say, there's no mention of God in it. But the video does a great job of glorying in the wonder that we're all carbon-based beings. And finishes off with this happy reminder. It says with such gladness. And remember, in the end, you're all made of stardust. I wonder how many people have found that to be of comfort when the doctor says, I'm afraid there's nothing more we can do. But the good news is there is a resurrection. Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead and promised a resurrection, life after death, for those who put their faith and trust in him. Death is not the end. Life is not empty. The proof of the pudding is that Christ is alive. Jesus doesn't leave his disciples or us in a state of hopelessness. He moves us as he did them from a broken heartedness to a blazing heartedness. There's the journey for you in brief. Broken heartedness, hope extinguished, to blazing heartedness, hope ignited. All because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's going to take them from, he's going to rekindle their hope in him as the one true king. 
He's going to take them from deep sorrow to supreme joy. How? By revealing himself to them. But not in the way we might think. Verse 16 has already informed us that when Jesus came alongside these guys to speak with them, they were kept from recognizing him. So they've just poured out with sadness. They've just poured out with their mouths, if you like, the, the sadness that they, you see on their faces. They're gutted. I mean, they're, they're actually walking along and they're, they're, they're talking with each other. Jesus comes alongside them and says, what are you talking about as you walk along the way? The depth of their despair and their pain. Stops them dead in their tracks. Did you notice that? As they're walking along the, 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 the road, they stopped. Are you, you mustn't be from around here. Are you the only person in all Jerusalem who does not know what has been going on? You know what that tells you, by the way? Everybody knows about it. 25 years later, there's a guy called Paul who's on trial before a governor, Festus, and a guy called Felix, uh, Agrippa, sorry. Festus or Felix? Uh, and, and he's before the King Agrippa as well. And he's able to turn around and say to God, now you know fine and well that I'm talking, he, people are accusing him of being crazy, talking about a resurrection from the dead. He turns to the king and says, from Jerusalem, he says, you know what I'm talking about, you were there. This was not done in a corner. But their sadness is such that it stops them dead in their tracks. Now what would you have done if you saw people you loved in that state of sadness, if they were kept from recognizing you, in all their sadness, they stop, their faces are downcast, they look miserable. What would you have done if you were Jesus at that point? Do you know what I would have done? It's me. I'm alive. It's all right. The game's on. You know, that's what... But that's not what Jesus did. Why? Why continue to conceal your identity? you ask that question he does train their eyes on him he wants them to see him but not as he walks along the road with him but as he appears in the pages of this book in the scriptures that's how he's going to rekindle their hope look at this is the second thing we're talking about verses 25 to 27 hope rekindled well, the first thing that he does here is rebuke them for their lack of faith. How foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So what Jesus is pointing out for us here is that their problem is not really a lack of information. Actually, when you look back over the text, it's amazing how much they do know. They're looking at all the right bits of the story, the bits you're supposed to look at. They know that Jesus speaks a message from God. That's true. That's what it means to say he's a prophet. They know that no one ever spoke like he did or did the things that he did. That's true. They know that Jesus was crucified and killed, and that's significant. And they even know that the tomb was empty. That's the rumor that's spreading. But they have, So they have everything they need. The way I think about this is they have everything they need, all the right components, but it's all in flat pack. <laughs> it's all in flat pack. It's not in its construct yet. They're not able to make sense of all these bits and put it all together. It's not all that long ago since the Vikings of Ikea landed on our shores. Gone are the days when you would buy your furniture assembled. I mean, who would have thought how inconvenient that was? Born was the age of the flat pack. It's just, it's just Lego for grown-ups, really, isn't it? But imagine yourself opening up a flat pack. You have all these different bits. You've got the wood, 
those weird claw screws. You have the little wooden pegs. They always put in too many of those. And you have the Allen key because screwdrivers are out of fashion as well. And you have all these things, but you don't have any instructions. You don't have any explanation for how all these different bits fit together. How do you think you would get on? Oh, Mr. DIY is sitting there thinking, I think I could nail it. But I, I would be in trouble. Many of us would be in trouble. Stranger still is the fact that sometimes when we have a flat pack and it all looks like it's together for us, like we've built this little construct, but there's this bit. <laughs> there's this bit that's left over and we're not quite sure where it fits. Or, or how, and we just think, oh, silly Vikings. Silly Ikea, they must have dropped this in by accident. Surely we don't need this bit. Well, I think that's exactly what's kind of what's going on with the disciples. They've all the right bits, but no explanation as to how it all fits together. And they actually think they've maybe got one or two bits that don't belong. I think that's what's hinted at in verse 21. When Cleopas said, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. It's not quite... We had hoped he was the one who was going to be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's not we had hoped that he was the one who was going to save us from our sins. There's redeem Israel. So he has in mind, by those words, a certain kind of redeemer. In his mind, the Messiah has kind of been built up into this savior leader who would drive out, well, his big problem was this Roman occupying army. To establish a, a physical kingdom with physical boundaries. So actually the suffering and the death of Jesus confused him. The death bit surely belongs in another pack. <laughs> but Cleopas is wrong. That's why Jesus rebukes him in verse 25 for being foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter glory? In other words, Cleopas, your biggest problem is not the political invader. You don't need delivered from the oppression of the Roman army. You need delivered from the oppression of your sinful heart. It has a tighter control on you than any occupying army ever could. And Jesus is trying to help him understand that. And through this passage, help us understand it. Because it's the same problem we have without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness for sins that's what the Old Testament tells us Isaiah told you to expect a suffering servant who would be wounded for the transgressions of his people one who would be crushed but who would see the light of life Jesus rebukes him because he says you should have known this you have the prophets you have the scriptures you should have known so Jesus accuses these guys in short of selective listening. They've taken bits out of the scriptures that they didn't want. And they made the Bible all about them and their felt needs. But it's not about them. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. That's why Jesus says to them, to us, look again. Look again. Beginning with Moses. In other words, right at the very beginning. And all the prophets, all the way through to the end. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, you might think, that's a little bit of an odd thing to say. 
Jesus says, all of the scriptures testify about me, but he appears so late in the story. I mean, look, we're, we're almost like two-thirds in by the time he appears. So how can he say, all of the scriptures testify about me? Look again, look again. I found this clip the other day, and I thought, oh, I'm going to transcript this and say this on Sunday. But then I thought, no, I'm going to show you, because it's beautiful. It's all about him. Let's watch this. Sixty-six books, dozens of authors, a holy canon thousands of years in the making. Consider the works, accounts of history and law, prophecy and poetry, verses of wisdom and letters from friends. Now, look again, what do you see? Behind the fallen creation, where the first son Adam led all humanity astray, there is the faithful son, a new Adam who fulfills the promise and crushes the serpent's head. In the waters of the flood, just as God used Noah to save his family from judgment, there is a greater vessel by which all God's children are saved. On the altar of desperation, just as Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice, comes the answer from the wilderness, behold the lamb. For a thirsty people, just as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, there is a rock whose living water satisfies forever. In the battle against Goliath, where an unlikely king became a champion for his people, we see the shadow of a greater king who defeats sin and death to claim our victory. In the long exile of a people, Isaiah's eyes were opened to a vision of salvation and the eternal journey of God's people to the promised land. Until finally, in humble manger lay the hope of the world, the king who reigns from a throne of straw to Calvary's cross to the deathless tomb of eternal Easter. Every story casts his shadow. Every word, every verse bears his testimony. The Holy Messiah, Jesus Christ, eternal King. This is the Gospel Project. That's right. Every story, every page, it's all about him. Helping us to understand who he is, what he's coming to do, and the significance of it. So as Jesus teaches these guys along the road, as he refuses at first to reveal himself in his person, physically before them, it's because he wants them to see and hope in him. He wants them to look at the book again and see him. Look to the book and you'll see him. This is why he makes such a big deal of revealing himself to these two travelers, not in the flesh, but in the Bible. Because he wants their confidence to be rooted in the unchanging truth of God's words and not just in their subjective experience. Because there would be a day coming when they would no longer have the risen Jesus walking, talking, and eating, eating with them. Where then would they look for a solid base for their faith? Where would they look in the, in the day of trouble when maybe doubt presses in hard on them or their experiences make life tough? Well, in the clear light of day, however they were feeling, whatever anyone else said to them, they could pull out their Bibles for themselves and say, we were not mistaken. 
Jesus died for sin. He really is risen from the dead. And that changes everything. And I believe it. The same is true for each of us. The making of a confident follower has to do with knowing and believing the Bible. What was it in the end that these two travelers reflected on? They saw Jesus, right? They did see him. He revealed himself to them. But what did they marvel at most? How their hearts burned while he talked with them along the way and opened up the scriptures to them. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. Do you, you do know that you don't need Jesus to appear in the flesh for you to believe, uh, believe in him. You meet him in the Bible. I wonder if you've read it. Many people actually discard it and think it's all a lot of nonsense, but have never actually taken a little bit of time to read even one of the 66 books contained in it. Um, I think you're missing out on something. You might feel like even you know the gist of Christianity, but maybe you need to look again. Maybe you need the kind of explanation that Jesus gave these two travelers. We often, in this church, encourage people to, who are asking questions about Christ to maybe join a group where you study the Bible together, you open it up and look at it, see what it says, ask questions, tear it apart, figure out what it looks like to believe it and so on. Actually, that's a key part of the testimony of each of the folks who are being baptized today, whether it's Trajani IF or Cornell IF or with Wing Chung, Hannah too at Equip, reading the Bible. It, it's awakening. It stirs our hearts. Maybe it's the case that you could ask the friend who brought you. If you feel like, I don't want to sit in a group with people and read the Bible. That's just doubly weird. Um, maybe you want to ask the person who brought you along to church today to read it with you. Even just one passage. Take me through that passage that that man explained and then let's talk about it again. It's a helpful thing to do. You know, some do come and say, I'm not prepared to listen to this. Well, maybe, maybe that's because your, your view of Christianity has been shaped by childhood assumptions or experiences. My encouragement is look to the book. Look again. You might be surprised at what you see. If you would like some help, you don't have to, but if you would like some help to do this, we're happy to serve folks in this way. There are connect cards that are in the pews round about you. There's, there's lots of blank space on there. There's space to fill in your details. If you'd be interested in joining one of these groups, like a Christianity Explored group, or reading the Bible with someone else to give them the opportunity to explain it to you, we'd be really glad to help you. You can just hand that to one of the welcomers at the door uh, or grab me afterwards. We'd be glad to talk, you about it, talk to you about it. And brothers and sisters, those who do trust in Christ, let's not forget that Jesus is addressing people who are downcast. I think this is important. It's true that sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives that make us feel that way. Or it sometimes dashes our hopes. It can cause a bit of a wobble in our faith. Well, these are the times when we'll be tempted to doubt God's words. Uh, These will be the times when we're tempted to not read it. But those are the times not to neglect the Bible, but those are the times to spend hours looking. That's how you begin to recover sight and rekindle faith, love, and hope in Jesus. And not only rekindle it, but ignite it. Ignite it to set it ablaze. Because faith is fanned into flame 
by the living and active word of God. That's what happens with these guys. The truth sets their hearts on fire. Look with me and see their hope ignited in verses 28 to 31. At last, they are no longer kept from recognizing Jesus. The purpose of his concealment was to teach them about the centrality of the Bible and how they can see him in it. But now their eyes are opened and they see him with their own eyes, but only for an instant. Verse 32 said, They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is what the truth about Jesus and the resurrection does. It takes you from hope extinguished, broken-hearted, downcast, to hope ignited, blazing-hearted with your hope in Christ. It sets your heart ablaze. Genuine Christian truth, when taught, when understood, warms the heart. Not in a fuzzy sense, that's too sentimental, but with a depth of love and a depth of appreciation that makes you want to shout out, praise God, and makes you want to say, just get it done and let's sing. Hearing the Bible is not just a cerebral experience, but a heart-kindling experience. Susan and Lucy knew that joy. Lewis depicts this again so brilliantly in the line of which in the wardrobe. They were frightened. They thought, I suppose we should just go and, well, go and see how the battle's going back in Narnia. We've already sent word that Aslan is dead. Surely that's it. But as they walk away, they hear this altar, this stone table behind them crack. They turn around and they're fearful. But what do they see? Well, Aslan, shinier than ever, you know, in all his resurrected glory. And they rejoice in wonder at the meaningfulness of his death together. Aslan explains, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack. In other words, there's no more sacrifice needed. And even death itself would turn backwards. Yeah, Lewis. Lewis trusted Jesus, didn't he? He nicked that from the Bible, let's face it. But the amazing thing in this scene afterwards, it's not just, you know, the, the, it's not just, right, jump on my back, we're going to go and win this battle. There's about two paragraphs worth of, of them playing. <laughs> like, of playing joyfully. I'm, I'm surprised by that. But I shouldn't be. Because it's the right first response to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They were really happy. It talks about Aslan bounding over the broken stone table. And then just giggling and then realizing, well, I suppose we better go and fight. It's a brilliant scene. There's joy. They were really happy. And the same is true for those who believe in the risen Jesus. Our Savior is resurrected. Death has lost its sting. That which we should fear as, as, as an enemy is welcomed as a servant. Death no longer has power over us to crush us. Death only has the power to usher us into the presence of our Savior with whom we will live forever. And it's amazing to see the testimony of this even in saints who pass. I was with Grant Ritchie the night before he died. And he could respond in a very limited way. 
And I asked him two questions before I read, I'm the resurrection and the life to him. I asked him, Grant, are you anxious? And he said, uh-uh. And I said, Grant, are you trusting Christ? And he said, uh-huh. And that's powerful. Right to the very end. So that now, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is the difference the resurrection makes in those who believe. But finally, finally, the resurrection of Jesus has such an impact on those who believe it that it sends them running to tell others. Because if you've walked that walk from doubt to faith, if your downcast face has been brightened by a heart-stirring encounter with Jesus in the Bible, you'll want to tell others. It is the best news ever. That's what happens to these guys. In verse 33, they got up and returned to Jerusalem at once. Even though it was late, you could lose your wallet at that time of night on this road. But they have to share this news. They're aware of others who don't yet know that it's really true that Jesus really is alive. And makes alive all who believe. And so they're willing to risk the dangers of the journey to make sure people know. And we should do the same. On the road back to Jerusalem, they must have been so excited. I can't wait to tell them. It's really true. Jesus is alive. Oh, maybe we can show them the Bible verses that Jesus showed us so that they can really believe it for themselves. And I, I picture it as well. Uh, when, you, when you read into the text, you see that they are excited. They go back to Jerusalem. They go back to where the 11 are. They burst through the doors and they're just about to say, guess what? When someone says, it's true. Peter's seen the Lord. And they're like, don't. But guess what? We've seen him too. It's true. We're all seeing him. It's not just a figment of my imagination. These are witnesses testifying to the truth about Jesus. And Luke is telling us in this that the authentic response to meeting the risen Jesus is not just joy in your heart. It's running to tell others. And Luke will take great pains in the sequel to this book, in the book of Acts, to tell us how he gives us everything we need to share it. Share it. Fills us with passion, fills us with power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. So let's not stay silent. And if you're not a Christian, Luke is showing us that the authentic response to the news of the truth of the resurrection is faith. You today could actually go from doubt to faith. I don't know your situation. Maybe you're in a broken-hearted, downcast face kind of mode. Well, Jesus is someone who takes people who have broken hearts and makes them into blazing hearts. Takes people who have been crushed by life and have their hope extinguished by lots of different painful circumstances and reignites it through faith in him. And I wonder if you would trust in him. He died for your sin. That's the biggest problem. He rose again to life to confirm that God accepted his sacrifice three days earlier. It's done. The work's finished. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right before God. It's a gift. You just have to confess your sin, repent, and believe the good news. And in Romans 10, we read, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.
I'd like us just to take a minute to reflect on this before we baptize our brothers and sisters. In the quietness, reflect on what this message has been saying to you and either respond as a Christian or as a non-Christian in the appropriate way to yourself.